there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. I want to start by reading a passage from 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And Paul ends this section with these stark and frank words, have nothing to do with them. Sounds terribly familiar, doesn't it? That description of what it was going to be like in Timothy's day. If it was bad then, I think we would all agree that it's far worse now. And you and I, who call ourselves Christians, are meant to be instruments of God's peace in the midst of this kind of a world. We live in a fallen world, we live in a broken world, and we are ourselves sinners, saved only by grace. There dwells in none of us any good thing, but Jesus Christ, in his mercy and his love and his grace, calls us to himself and offers to us forgiveness and cleansing. But I'm particularly struck by that very first phrase, there will be terrible times in the last days, people will be lovers of themselves. We live in a, in a climate, an emotional and psychological climate, which constantly is telling us that we should learn to love ourselves. Could anything be more diametrically opposed to what the Word of God says here? It's a sign of terrible last days. And so I've chosen a subject that must sound absolutely outrageous to anyone who is not versed in the scriptures. Imagine in this day and age trying to talk about abandonment of self instead of self-fulfillment self-actualization, self-image, self-esteem, etc., etc. But this is the word of the Lord. It's my job to be faithful to the word of the Lord. 
And he asks us to give up our right to ourselves in order that we may be instruments of his peace. Not one of us can be effective as an instrument and be preoccupied with ourselves. We are meant to be broken bread and poured out wine in this desperately hungry world. I wonder if you have clearly defined the meaning and the purpose of your life. Sometimes I ask young people when they come to me and say, well, how do I find the will of God? My first question to them usually is, what do you want more than anything else in the world? Very often I draw a blank, or they say to me, well, I don't know, I mean, like, you know, it's just, uh, well, it's just really hard. You need to find out what you want more than anything else in the world, and if the answer is the will of God, then you can find it. But you have to make up your mind that that's what you want. Well, but how can I make up my mind that I want it until I know what it is, they say to me. But you know, God doesn't give us a smorgasbord and say, pick what you like from this array. The will of God is a course that we choose, and we choose it by faith. Is he trustworthy? Does he know what's best for me? Does he call me to follow him? Will I follow him? That's the great question. I trust that you have defined the meaning and the purpose of your life, that it is a purpose which daily is earnestly sought and at least in some measure fulfilled, that you are well on your way. If there are any Presbyterians here tonight, you may know the shorter catechism. The very first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It almost seems today as though we are living in a world whose purpose is to glorify self and enjoy self forever. It's not going to last that long. I want to read another passage from Matthew 16, verses 21 to 26. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, you may remember, and he tells his disciples that he is going to go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to, the, to life. And Peter took him aside and said just exactly what you and I probably would have said to him, Never, Lord, this must never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then he said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Another translation says, Give up his right to himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. 
What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Jesus has clearly shown us here that there is a direct link between self-sacrifice and fulfillment. You know, the world can't make head or tail out of this sort of thing. The world is always telling us you got to find yourself, you got to express yourself, you got to be yourself, I got to be me, you got to do your own thing. McDonald's tells us every day, have it your way. If it feels good, do it. And here's Jesus saying, if you want to be my disciple, there are three conditions. Number one, it's the hardest thing in the world for any one of us to do. Give up the right to yourself. Self-abandonment. And that is the root, Jesus says, to fulfillment. If you try to save yourself, you're going to lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. Just complete opposite of everything the world is telling us, isn't it? And so this is why it's so difficult for us to comprehend, because we're bludgeoned insistently, inescapably, continuously, every day, with the encouragement to love ourselves, to do our own thing, to be who we want to be, instead of loving God, doing God's thing, and being what God wants us to be. There is a direct link between self-sacrifice and fulfillment and between suffering and glory. That's the great truth that I tried to bring out in this book that I mentioned, the path through suffering. There is a link between suffering and glory, between sacrifice of oneself and total fulfillment. And when I think back over the people who have had the greatest influence in my life, and God knows there have been many godly people who have shaped my life, primarily my parents to begin with and a great many other great saints of God. But without exception, the people who have most deeply affected my life have been people who have suffered and people who have given up their right to themselves in order to help me, for example. So there, if you are one of those people that likes outlines, and I do because it does help, you might not be able to remember anything at all unless I give you three things that I do want to talk about. So I'll tell you three things, and I've already told you they are the three conditions for discipleship. Number one, abandonment of self. Give up your right to yourself. Number two, take up the cross. And number three, follow me. Those are the conditions of discipleship. And Let's remember Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, he will not force you. He will not invade the freedom of your will to choose not to follow him. Isn't it incredible that God created a creature capable of defying him, of shaking his fist in God's face, or even of saying, God doesn't exist. God created us with that freedom. So he's simply saying, if you want to be my disciple, 
These are the conditions. They are the most outrageous and the most impossible so long as we subscribe to the world's notion of doing our own thing. We've got to discard that. I have a right to myself, I'm told. Cardinal Newman said, conscience has rights because conscience has duties. Nowadays we hear a very great deal about rights. We hear practically nothing about duties. We hear a great deal about privileges, but all privileges entail duties. Can you think of a higher privilege, a holier privilege, than being a disciple of Jesus Christ? But that privilege carries with it these three duties that Jesus spelled out so clearly. And Jesus himself sets the example for us. The symbol of our faith is a cross. That is the central symbol of our faith, an instrument of torture, of voluntary self-sacrifice. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. And he will not take your life. He wants you to give it to him, to offer it up. I grew up in a home where we sang hymns every morning. We sang one hymn every single morning before my father read the Bible, and then we would all get down on our knees and he prayed. And among the old gospel hymns that we loved to sing in our home was that very familiar one to most people, the old rugged cross. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. We can get very sentimental, but to ponder what that cross meant for Jesus, there's not much sentiment left, is there? There's another gospel hymn that says, see from his head, his hands, his feet, Sorrow and love flow wounded down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Just this week, I had a letter from a lady who has a seriously handicapped daughter, 13 years old. An incredible story of the daily suffering that she and the whole family have to go through, all the processes. This child is incapable of doing anything at all for herself. She cannot speak. She cannot see. But the letter was filled with joy. And the mother described the blessing that this child has been to that family. There are five children in the family. She said they have all learned patience and compassion and love when this child has no way of responding to their love at all. And she said, not very long ago, my high school son went to a dance and there was a girl in a wheelchair and he took that girl out on the floor and held her hand and danced beside the wheelchair. She said, 
It almost broke my heart, but I was so filled with joy to think that here's a boy who doesn't care what everybody else is thinking, a boy who is concerned for that girl who's saying, not my will, thine Lord, not what I want, what can I do for her? Broken bread and poured out wine. Man achieves true human dignity, someone said, when he frees himself from all subservience to feelings. And if there's another concept that doesn't make any sense to the modern world, it's sub the idea that we're not supposed to be subservient to our feelings. Feelings are just paramount in mo most people's minds. Very often when I have a question and answer period, I will find that many of the questions are couched in this kind of language. They begin with, how do you feel about such and such an issue? Abortion, homosexuality, alcoholism, whatever. As if Elizabeth Elliot's feelings are very important. It's not my feelings, it's does God have something to say about this? Many of you know the name Fanny Crosby. She was a blind hymn writer. She wrote over 8,000 hymns. And here's a wonderful illustration of not being subservient to her feelings. When she was nine years old, this is what she wrote, Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I shall be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot, nor I won't. She wrote, Blessed Assurance, to God be the glory, face to face, and about 8,000 other hymns. When I think about those Bible stories of Noah, Abraham, Daniel, how do you think Noah was feeling? when he was building that preposterous vessel on dry land, there was going to be no possible way he was ever going to move that thing to water. Can you imagine the neighbors and all their remarks? I mean, this guy has really lost all his marbles. When God said to Abraham, build an ark, I mean to Noah, what did Noah do? Built an ark, didn't he? He was not subservient to his feelings. When God told Abraham to take that precious son, which was the child of promise, and sacrifice him, Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled the donkey, put the wood on the donkey, took his son with him, and the knife, and went up the mountain. What, was it, what do you suppose was going through Abraham's mind? Can't you imagine a television interview thrusting a microphone into Abraham's face and saying, well, tell us how you really felt. Now tell us how did you really feel. We don't have a word, not a word in Scripture about how Noah felt or how Abraham felt or how Daniel felt when he was contemplating going into the lion's den. Where does a lion start chomping? How would you feel? It's not very important, is it, how we feel? We are creatures of feelings, of course, but what matters 
is our choices, which are made in the freedom of the will that God has given us. To abandon myself is a choice. Is there anybody in the world that feels good about it? I can't imagine. I never feel good about it, but there's never a day that goes by that God doesn't give me opportunities to say no to myself and yes to God. 36 years ago, I was standing beside my shortwave radio in the jungle in Ecuador when I received word that my husband, Jim Elliott, was missing. Now, I knew that he and the four other missionaries with whom he had gone into savage Indian territory were in danger. We knew this. We talked about it ahead of time. We wives talked to our husbands about what we were supposed to do if they didn't come back. We prayed over every single step. It was prepared for months, months of dropping gifts, months of prayer, months of very, very careful planning. And we believed that God had opened the door one step at a time, door after door after door, which could easily have been closed, had been opened, and we prayed for the will of God. As soon as I learned that my husband was missing, the Lord brought to my mind the words from Isaiah 43, verse 2. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, for I am the Lord thy God. Five days later, I learned that my husband was dead. Suddenly, after only 27 months of marriage, I was a widow. I had been 12 years old when I told the Lord that I wanted his whole will in my life at any cost. Now, does a 12-year-old have any idea what that's going to entail? Of course not. Does a 40-year-old or a 60-year-old or an 80-year-old, doesn't make any difference what age we make that commitment. We do not know what the next day holds, but we trust the Savior. He died for us. Do you think he can be trusted? So here was the test of the validity of that commitment. Give up your right to yourself my right to live a happy life for the rest of my life with Jim Elliott. That was a big thing, of course. I acknowledge that that was a very big thing. And 20 years after that, I was widowed a second time. There was 13 years between husband number one and husband number two, 13 years of widowhood, and the Lord gave me a short marriage to my second husband, and he died of cancer. What does it mean to take up the cross? I believe that that is our opportunity either to be resentful and bitter or to say, yes, Lord. Giving up my right to myself is saying no to myself, and taking up the cross is saying yes to God. The cross is anything that cuts across my human will. 
And as someone has said, when the will of God cuts across the will of man, somebody has to die. And the Apostle Paul said, I die daily. What is your cross? It can be rejected. It can be refused. You can go through the rest of your life being angry at God, being bitter, resentful. Somebody did something to you which is unforgivable, and so you lug that unbearable baggage of bitterness and resentment through the rest of your life because you will not leave it at the cross. I don't know how many times people have said to me, weren't you angry at God for taking two husbands? Maybe my memory's poor. I know my memory's pretty poor, but I think if I'd ever been angry with God, I would remember that. I don't think I've ever been angry with him simply because I've never doubted that Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now remember, I'm relating all this to that prayer that we all prayed this evening, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. If I'm going to be an instrument of peace to other people, if I am going to sow love where there is hatred, to sow pardon where there is injury, I have to take up my cross. I have to say, yes, Lord. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote a book about the five stages of grief, but that book was not written back in 1956. It was much later than that. And people have said to me, what about those five stages of grief? Did you go through those? Well, I didn't know about the five stages of grief, so I didn't go through them. Um, didn't know I was supposed to. But I do believe there is a shortcut to peace. And it's that simple word, acceptance. Amy Carmichael, a great missionary to India, and any of you that listen to my radio program or have read any of my books, you know that I can hardly ever get through a week of my radio programs, and I don't think I've ever written a book without quoting Amy Carmichael, because she is one of those great saints who has so deeply influenced my own life. I never met her. She was an Irish missionary who spent 53 years in India without a furlough, and she wrote 40 books. I had memorized a poem that she wrote called, In Acceptance Lieth Peace. And God brought to my mind those words when I knew that my husband was dead. I have two choices, and only two. I can say, no, Lord, I'm angry with you. I will resent this. I will be bitter for the rest of my life, which will make me an unget-along-withable old woman. The only, only other choice is, yes, Lord, I don't understand it. I would never have chosen the gift of widowhood. I can't change it. But Lord, I do believe with all my heart that you love me, that everything that happens fits into a pattern for good to them that love God, and that is straight out of the book of Romans 8.28. Everything that happens, no exceptions, and please, do not write down on your little question sheet, 
but how does this thing fit into God's pattern? Because everybody has something in their lives about which they are saying, I don't see how this could ever fit into a pattern for good. We don't have to see. We only have to trust. Faith operates in the dark, but we have no answers. We do not know how any given event fits into God's pattern for good, but we do know that it does. You know that poem, my life is but a weaving betwixt my God and me. I do not choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget. He sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unfold the pattern and explain the reason why. For the dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. God doesn't give us heroics very often. Most of us don't know anything at all about heroics. No great crises, no great crosses. It's the little things. It's the giving up my right to my preference when my husband prefers something else. It's my giving up my right to the way things ought to be done when somebody else in the committee thinks it ought to be done that way. It's those tiny little things. It's the allowing somebody else to break into the line in front of you without giving them a dirty look. The person who cuts you off on the highway, instead of blowing your horn at him, you say, well, the peace of the Lord be with you. Try that sometime. <laughs> and you know, if we can't take up the cross in those tiny, little, hidden, unselfish ways that perhaps only God sees, I ask you how, in God's name, will we ever take up any really painful cross? We need the practice in the little things. And George MacDonald said, the mightiest act that to man's hand doth lie is the giving up of his right to himself. It's the willing against ourselves. I have a great admiration for Dr. James Dobson, but I do have at least one little point in which I would like to have an argument with him. <laughs> he has written a book called The, the Strong-Willed Child, and mothers are always coming up to me and telling me they have a strong-willed child. Well, I don't know any mother of a two-year-old that doesn't think she has a strong-willed child. <laughs> the word is stubborn, rebellious, not strong-willed, because strength of will is that which says, not my will, thine be done. When Jesus wept great drops of blood, as it were, sweated, as it were, great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, that was the monumental struggle between his human will, which dreaded the suffering, as any human being would dread, and the will of his Father. And you remember that his first prayer was, if it be possible, let this cup pass. 
But then, after further struggle, he prayed, if it is not possible, nevertheless, not my will, thine be done. And that's strength of will, not stubbornness, not rebellion. The mightiest act, the two man's hand doth lie, is to will against himself. To say no to myself, I guarantee that before you go to bed tonight, there will be at least one tiny opportunity to say no to yourself about something. There's not an hour that doesn't contain that chance for most of us. The third thing, number one, give up your right to yourself. Number two, take up the cross. And number three, Jesus says, follow me. And in Matthew 19, 16 to 22, this is what it says. A man came up to Jesus and he said, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones, the man inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great possessions. What was Jesus asking for? A total stripping of himself, self-abandonment. It was impossible for that young man because he was too rich to follow. You and I are very often too busy to follow, too smart to follow, too burdened down with things to do to follow. Some of you may be too rich to follow. Jacques Maritain said, the great problem for man is that of finding himself a master. The contemporary mind replies, to find oneself a master is to break with equality. With the sovereignty of the individual, each must be self-sufficient. Thus, man becomes a traveler without a compass, the sovereign of his own misfortune. Does it make sense to the world to say, lose yourself and you'll find fulfillment? Try to save yourself and you'll lose your life. The world can't make head or tail out of that. You know, an awful lot of people who call themselves Christians are acting as if God didn't exist. A question that I'm always asking myself whenever I'm perplexed or praying very desperately, maybe banging away on God's door about some particular thing, 
question I ask myself then is, what do I expect God to do about this, really? Do I expect him to get rid of this impossible person? Do I expect him to change my situation? Do I expect him to get me out of this? To remove the thorn, as Paul the Apostle asked God to do? And you remember Paul asked three times that the thorn be removed, and the answer was no. My grace is all you need. And if Paul hadn't settled for that and accepted the thorn, you and I and millions of others throughout Christian history would have been deprived of that tremendous lesson that every one of us needs to learn. My grace is all you need. What kind of a difference does Jesus Christ make in your life? What kind of a difference do you expect him to make? Just two weeks ago, we were at a conference in New Jersey, and after all the meetings were over, there were groups of women standing around in little knots, people that were going to be traveling in vans for many miles. And I was stopping to talk to one of the groups, and they said they started nattering away about all the things they'd been hearing during that week. And I said, now, on your way home, why don't you ask each other what kind of a difference Jesus Christ is going to make in your life as a result of being here this weekend. You know, it's one thing when somebody comes up and says, oh, that was wonderful, thank you so much for that talk, or I really enjoyed your speech. I always wonder, did they really hear anything from God? Is Jesus Christ going to make a difference in your life? Is there some point at which Jesus has been saying to you, will you follow me in this? Will you take up your cross? Will you say no to yourself and yes to me? And following means obedience, one day at a time, one step at a time. And again, I learned that at home in our family devotions. After breakfast, we would sing, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. People ask me sometimes, what do you talk about on the radio? What do you talk about when you travel around? What do you write books about? Two simple words. I say it all boils down to that. Trust and obey. What's God asking you to obey him in tonight? There is a clear connection between morality and destiny. And I'm told that in the Lübeck Cathedral of West Germany, these words are inscribed, Ye call me master, and obey me not. Light, and see me not. The way, and follow me not. The life, and desire me not, wise, and hear me not, petition, rich, and petition me not, eternal, and seek me not, friend, and trust me not, Lord, and serve me not, powerful, and honor me not, just, and fear me not. If I condemn you, 
blame me not. Is he Lord of your life? Has he made a difference? If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be sufficient evidence to convict you? The commandments of Jesus entail self-abandonment. Nowadays, we're encouraged to be autonomous. Be your own person. Do your thing. You have a right to yourself. We hear that children in public schools are being taught value clarifications, not morals, not right and wrong. I was talking with a public school teacher and I said, what values can they clarify in your class? And she looked at me and gave a very feeble answer, well, their, their own values. And I said, and if children come from homes where no values have been taught, what do you have to offer them? The answer, of course, is nothing, zero, zilch value clarification. We talk, we hear people talk about, well, don't jam your morality down my throat. Where does morality come from? It comes out of this book. And yet those very same people will jam their morality down my throat, won't they? They tell me that I'm not supposed to oppose abortion, for example. That's jamming their morality down my throat, but my views on abortion are not Elizabeth Elliot's. They came out of this book. The pathway of love to Jesus Christ is a pathway of obedience. And he will not take us anywhere that his love does not lead. All his dealings with us are love. And I can look back over the things that seemed the most tragic and the most unexpected and the most sorrowful and I can say, Jesus led me all the way. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. And you know, I don't know anything that simplifies life more wonderfully than choosing the will of God. That was my lifetime choice from the age of 12. And parents never underestimate the spiritual discernment of your children. Very often they're way ahead of you. I don't know whether I talked to my parents at that point about this commitment that I had made, but I was inspired by a woman in China, a woman by the name of Betty Scott Stam. She had gone to China, she had visited our home on our way to China, and I vaguely remember that visit, but when I was eight years old I heard about the fact that Betty Scott Stam and her husband John had been beheaded by Chinese communists. And it was when I was 12 that I copied into my Bible the prayer that she had written, Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. Work out thy whole will in my life, at any cost, now and forever. 
Very few things are up for grabs in the life of a person who has made up his mind to do what God says. And I am here to tell you, it is the gateway to joy. Giving up your right to yourself, taking up the cross, and following is the way to fulfillment, it is the way to joy, it is the way to glory. Everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>